You're listening to the Denver Real Estate Investing Podcast, brought to you by RICO, your local guide for all things real estate investing in Colorado. What's up, Denver? Welcome back to an episode. Chris Lopez here. I got my buddy Terrence Doyle in the studio. And we're going to be talking about two things this podcast. What is going on in the marketplace? Because we got some uncertain times and uncertain time changes people's mindsets, but also creates some opportunity. And as we talk about that, we're going to weave in a really great apartment building that Terrence bought during the height of COVID last year, recently just closed. So great case today about how you can still find amazing deals, amazing returns during uncertain times. Terrence, man, glad to have you here. Yeah, it's great to be back. We feels like we haven't done this in a while. So uh, yeah, excited to be here and in the new studio and to talk, uh, talk real estate. I feel like the world has completely changed since the last time we had a podcast. So I think it'll be good to uh, have an update and talk about, uh, talk about the market, talk about real estate and, uh, Talk about what, what you're seeing. Yeah, I mean, like we were some of the last 90 days or 120 days now, man. It's uh, the world has changed a little bit. And as we were uh, kind of bantering before we hit record, you know, you've been hitting on message of three things with your team at Verico, and I think actually a great thing to mm-hmm. talk about, like, hey, the three things that you're focusing on, the mindset you got your team on over there doing, and then we can start weaving in like uh, this really cool deal you put together. Yeah. So you know, we recently closed on, uh, we sold. Uh, formerly known as Timber Ridge, called Midtown Plaza, and uh, you know it was basically just a group of local investors and I. And uh, you know, you know, I was you and I were talking about the genesis of the deal. You know, I found the deal in like July. I first discovered the deal in like July of 2020. So if you if you rewind what was going on in the world, July 2020, like it was very difficult. Uh, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of fear. Um, you know, COVID was still like raging, a new thing. People didn't know. You know, Horrible the, time to get debt for commercial property. It was super difficult, right? There was a ton of unknown, a lot of uh, a lot of fear. And, uh, you know, debt was difficult. Raising equity was difficult. I mean, on this deal, uh, you know, we had multiple people back out, you know, from the time that we put it under contract to the time that we closed. You know, there was like a three or four month gap there of getting the debt and doing the environmental and all the testing because things were slower due to COVID, harder to get into units, things like that. And so, yeah, I mean, looking back on that time, it's kind of similar to how it feels like today. Like investor sentiment is a little shaky. I think there is some fear and there's just a lot of unknown, right? You have three, you know, uh, putting COVID aside, right? The world we live in today and what's happened since February and March of 2022, right? So two years later is, you know, you, you know, we're at war with in Ukraine, you know, we're back in Ukraine. We haven't been at war since the early nineties, right? So that's been 30 years. You have, you know, massive inflation, uh, that we haven't seen since the early eighties. So that's been like 40 years since Mm -hmm. we've seen this kind of inflation. And then the last one is, you know, we've had mortgage rates, residential mortgage rates, uh, go from like three to three and a quarter to like six, six and a half in like a four month span. So any one of those individually would rock the economy or have a pretty big impact, but you have three of those things colliding all at the same time. And so what's that, what that has done, and, you know, we work with some pretty sophisticated investors that have, you know, run billion dollar hedge funds and private equity and, you know, really, really sophisticated people that have seen a lot of different trends. And they've all said, we've never seen anything like this. And, uh, you know, the way they've described it is just the Fed trying to thread the needle, you know what I mean? In terms of what they're trying to do with raising interest rates to offset inflation. And so, you know, it, it kind of feels like the same thing. Like, even though we've had like a lot of great exits and we've had a lot of momentum, 
you know, the time we sit today reminds me of like where I was in June, July, and August of 2020, where a lot of uncertainty, a lot of fear. Some lenders are like, we're not lending at all. I don't know if you remember that, but like, oh, I remember that in COVID, like lenders were like, we're not even lending. Like we, we're not lending. Like, you know, we're working from home, no lending. And, uh, you know, lenders aren't being that direct today, but they're definitely like widening their spread, being much more conservative on loan to value, on the appraisals. Just everybody has kind of tightened up and is basically saying, we're going to press the pause button. And, uh, you know, so I think it's important to realize that like, you know, we bought what I think, you know, in some of the best real estate, some of the best deals, risk adjusted basis that we bought in 2020, we're now selling those and doubling, tripling our money. And the only reason we were able to do that is because we stayed consistent and disciplined during what most people thought was a, a time of fear and to maybe press pause. Right. And so I think the same thing for today, our mentality at Verico has been, hey, just because the rest of the world is stopping or pausing or afraid doesn't mean we need to stop it. Maybe mean we need to adjust some underwriting, be much more conservative on exits and cap rates and and underwrite much higher interest rates. But it doesn't mean we should stop because when other people get afraid, that's actually when you can get some of your best deals. It's like the Warren Buffett quote. The Warren Buffett quote, yeah, which I think you know pretty uh, well. Uh, not on camera, apparently. When be- other people are afraid, be greedy. And when people are greedy, be afraid. Yes. Yes, that's it. You know, yeah. It's the inverse, right? It's like whatever people are really bullish on something, maybe that's the time to be cautious. And when other people are being cautious or fearful, maybe that's the time to be a little bit more bullish. And and so I I just think it doesn't go, it doesn't feel good to be looking at a screen uh, watching CNBC and everything's red and the Dow's down a thousand points. Like that doesn't feel good, but that actually means that's the time to buy Apple or Amazon, right? I mean, most really good investors, that's what they would say over time. And so that's what we're experiencing and seeing. And that's kind of our frame of mind going into, I think, this period of uncertainty. And, you know, people are throwing around the word recession. And yeah, I mean, I do think we're going into a period of time where people are going to have less liquidity. I mean, that's essentially what the Fed wants to do uh, with raising interest rates and all of the, you know, fiscal uh, policies that they're putting in place is really just to take liquidity out of the market. And that's their answer to inflation. That's what they think the answer is. And so whenever that happens, right, there's going to be a major shakeup. Like a lot of my buddies that are residential or commercial lenders, I mean, their business has been cut in half or more than half, yep. right? I mean, I have buddies that used to do 30 loans a month and now they're doing five. So, you know, then that's going on across the board, right? Residential real estate is really, really, you know, coming to a stop. And I think commercial real estate is 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 much slower than it was. And it, and it really, in a short amount of time, has become a buyer's market where sellers aren't really dictating terms anymore. And, you know, so for us and in my personal opinion, you know, now's a great time to be proactive and to be looking and to be diligent and intentional about, you know, um, you know, I think hitting the streets and talking to as many brokers and, and just being ready. And we've done so many podcasts on what does it take to be ready to buy, right? Be pre-approved, have the cash, have the, have the lenders, you know, know who's lending right now. You know, one of the things that I've been spending a lot of time on is, Hey, who's in, who's looking to be aggressive investing and what lenders are looking to still be active because we're going to be active because we're going to, I, I, you know, we believe that we're going to be seeing uh, on a risk adjusted basis, you know, some really, really good opportunities uh, in the markets that we're in. And so, yeah, I just think high level, that's something good. You know, as we talk about Midtown Plaza and you go back to what the, what's going on in the world, it's not too dissimilar to what's going on now. Yeah. It's times of uncertainty. It's a frothy market. And back then in some instances, it was probably way tougher because like our people, yeah, hit pause on the world for two, three months. Right. I remember as you were raising money for that deal, you had a lot of people kind of him and hawing or, you know, backing out last minute. So it was tough to put together, but you stuck to the fundamentals, you underwrote a good deal and, you know, 
the team executed. And we were able to execute, yeah. So, so um, give us a high level. Like, you got the deal yeah. uh, almost, actually, less than two years ago, July of 2020. And I know it was a motivated seller, but there was a lot of uh, negotiating back and forth all around. Like, just paint a picture of what's going on and how you got it. Yeah, so the owner had owned it for 30-plus years. There was a lot of deferred maintenance. You know, she was a good, you know, she was a, she cared a lot about the property, just didn't have the capital to reinvest as time went on to upkeep. And so she had a lot of VA tenants. Uh, so like the federal government was paying veterans to stay there and they had lost their voucher because they had failed three inspections in a row. There were some units that didn't have hot water, some units that didn't have heat. There was holes in the roof. Uh, when we, when we went to look at the property, I mean, there was just needles everywhere, drugs. I mean, you would think this was like in a war zone. Um, and it was in a really, I think this is a North, it was North North Denver. Denver across the street from like brand new construction, brand new homes being built by KB homes, like six, seven, $800,000 homes, like literally two, three blocks. So not in a bad area, but just had been mismanaged, run down. And so she was very motivated because she was quickly losing cash flow and getting to be, you know, negative uh, cash flow to cover the debt service. And so when I saw the property, let's say in July of 2020, I was like, I knew immediately it was a deal. Uh, we just had to get to the right terms. And so we went under contract at a price. And then after we did the inspection, realized like, hey, this is way, you know, mold, uh, I think there was roaches. I mean, just everything you could imagine was uh, sewer issues. And so we were able to get a pretty good concession. I think it was close to 400,000. And, you know, at the time, you know, Brandon was, Brandon Kaufman was under a different flag, but he worked extremely hard. And so one of the, one of the fundamentals is having brokers that are experienced. I mean, I think when you're going into a season of uncertainty, having brokers that are experienced, know the market, are very confident and can sit in front of a seller that's motivated and say, listen, seller, this is, this is what's going to be needed if you want to sell. I've yeah. been through this many deals. I've seen it. I've seen it this many times. If you want to sell, this is what's needed. And so he did a really good job controlling the deal, controlling the seller and getting us to the closing. So we closed in late November of 2020 and we started construction and we had issues all the way, you know, with some residents didn't want to leave and we had to do evictions. And again, like evictions were super hard. And so, you know, every single thing was difficult. Getting materials was difficult, the whole thing. And, uh, you know, we finished construction in September of 2021. Okay. The world looked a lot different then. And so we were able to start raising, we were able to start um, renting units for two to $300 above pro forma. So we had, we had underwrote very conservative rents as if no, as if code was going to continue for two or three years and it was going to be very difficult to rent. And so we underwrote rents very conservatively. I believe it was like a thousand fifty for one bedrooms. And we ended up renting them for 13 between 13 and a quarter and 1375. So this was all one bedrooms and two bedrooms, right? One bedrooms and a few two bedrooms. Okay. Right. And then we were able to add a unit. They had a maintenance room that was like 600 square feet. We turned into a unit. So we took it from 40 to 41 units and we took, you know, pro forma rents from like, let's say a thousand, uh, 1100 to 1350 blended. Some of the, some of the two bedrooms were 1650 and some of the ones were a little higher, but blended, let's just call it 1350. And our property management team, Liv Lavender, was able to do an incredible job. I think, I believe we had the entire thing leased in like 10 weeks. So at least 40 units in 10 weeks is like unheard of. The average is more like eight a month, uh, two a week. And but we're you doing guys did that. some yeah. really creative stuff because I remember right, I think the tail end of leasing it, we went to go record one of the Bigger yeah. Pockets walkthroughs and you guys had, I don't know, a 15 foot banner on yeah. the side of the building, you know, giant QR code, uh, a good website. Uh, really good, like marketing video, mm-hmm. drone video. I think you had a lot of the residents out there and some team members out there, you know, in the common space, like, and it was just a really well done thing, which you typically don't see for 
I mean, a class <laughs> yeah, B apartment. Class B property. Like, yeah. I mean, it looked great, yeah. and you always do great finishes, mm-hmm. but then it's still, you know, what a 1960s, whatever it was, product. Um, but it got marketed as a class A product, which, I mean, I'm sure helped yeah. get the get people in the door. Yeah, you know, I think some of the nuance we've we've learned, you know, for sure has helped. You know, I think some of the systems and process we implement on construction allow us to do things cheaper and faster than the market at scale. And then I think on the property management side, yeah, we definitely know how to market properties. We know how to screen tenants quickly. We know how to get the right people in. And we, you know, we understand how to do rent studies, you know. And so just the fundamentals of leasing is like, how do you get the most views? How do you get the most showings? How do you convert those showings? How do you get the right people in? How do you screen them? And then how do you make sure that every single thing works? You know, in apartments, the number one thing for people to leave and not renew is, you know, my stove doesn't work or AC wasn't working or this. It's like, how do we get everything to work? And, you know, our team does an incredible job. You know, Daniel, my brother overseas, Liv Lavender. But, you know, the people that we have on the ground, you know, Jordan, Brittany, uh, Zach LaRue, I mean, have done an incredible job Mm -hmm. in terms of like the leasing, the management. Zach Spicer did an incredible job overseeing, you know, the construction. And, um, you know, I'm super humbled and thankful. You know, we have a really great team of people that really care and uh, that want to get things done. You know, they want to get things done. They're highly motivated. And we find, we've found good ways to align interest, you know, with uh, Verico and, and our investors and things like that. So, um, yeah. And so we finished, we finished leasing. We had grown the NOI. And initially we underwrote that the exit was going to be like six and a half million. We bought it for 4.4. 4, we're going to put a million in exit for six and a half. That was going to be a really great return. And what was the whole time you had planned? Uh, three years. Okay. I think we, we conservatively underwrote three years. And, you know, so with the current NOI and the market where it was, you know, Brandon and his team at KH gave us guidance that they thought they could trade at somewhere between 8.5 and 8.8. And they're like, let's go to market at 8.8. And they did an incredible job with, you know, the marketing plan. I think we had, you know, thousands and thousands of views online. We had, I don't know, something like 30 or 40 showings, which I've never seen. And, you know, multiple, multiple offers. I think we had over 10 offers emailed to us. And then we had five offers over asking and then two offers over 9 million. And then, you know, um, they were, you know, the brokers were able to get uh, the buyer that we ended up going with to 9.1. They put some earnest money that was non-refundable and we were able to close it. And let's say we went under contract the second week of February. We closed, I believe, like, the first or second week of April, something April, like that. Yeah. It was in April. And, uh, you know, it was, it was amazing. You know, it was a great, it was a great, uh, you know, I think, uh, model for Verico, for Live Lavender, for KH and everyone involved and, and every, and, and then our investors, you know, they got, uh, you know, the gross, uh, Moic was over three, uh, the net to investors, like 2.1 times your money. And like, uh, 16 to 18 months, something like that. I can't remember the exact I mean, if someone put a hundred bucks, they got like 200 and change back. Back, yeah, in a, in a short amount of time. And so just on a risk-adjusted basis, you know, it felt really, really good. And um, and so that was great. You know, we've got a couple other properties under contract to sell and it will be, you know, really good returns. But to date, I mean, that's been the highest gross MOIC and net MOIC that we've been able to return, you know, to our investors. And, um, and yeah, it was amazing. And I think just going back to, you know, the fundamentals of how we underwrote, you know, the principles of just, when everyone else was afraid in the market and people were like, oh, we're not buying and lenders were like, we're not lending, you know, we we're able to get very proactive. And, you know, one of the carrots on this deal that we didn't mention was that Brandon had a lender in his pocket that was like, we will lend to certain buyers if they're established, have a track record, have a certain amount of liquidity. And we hit those boxes and we were able to get insane terms on this deal. Really, really great terms. And so that was one thing is, you know, like when you're going into this uncertainty, having brokers that know the market and have lenders that are willing to lend allowed us to do this. Because First Bank was like, we're not going to lend. They were willing to lend at like 50% of purchase or something like terms Ugh. that wouldn't even make the deal work or yeah. cancel. And so having brokers that know the market, 
have the lenders that are willing to be active is a really, really big advantage. And and that was a huge key to us getting this. What were the rough terms on the loan? Do you remember? Just like high level? I think we got 80% of total cost. Um, We got it at 3.5% fixed for Mm. five years. We had IO through construction and 30-year AM. And the origination was that pretty like reasonable. Great terms for back oh, then. Yeah, no, it was really yeah. good, especially during the COVID. I mean, to get those terms at that time, especially yeah. on a deal that did not pencil and had, you know, uh, ten people living in it. You know, like it was twenty five percent occupied. I mean, no one was really looking to touch that kind of deal. But that goes to show you said, like you, you know, as you build out your team, work with you know high caliber people, then they're caliber people, especially people like Brandon. They know the right people, they know the right song and dance to keep yeah. the deal together and bring in this person, this person. Hey, you need a reality check over here, Mr. Seller, Mr. Buyer. Right. Here's where we can meet in the middle. Yeah. Um, I want to go back because I remember the marketing one for uh, what uh, Kaufman Hagen for the yeah. Kaufman Hagen did for this was a lot of fun. Because yeah. it was like the first like, you know, uh, first big digital blitz we did right. for the marketing. Yeah. And we spent a good chunk of money on there, but it was like, we got like 200,000 plus views on ads and a bunch of people like saying like, why do I keep seeing that on Google or Facebook? Like, Hell yeah, that's what we want to hear. And I know, hey, same thing you talked about for like taking uh, prospective tenants through the process of, you know, eyeballs on mm-hmm. property, get them in for a phone call, get them for a showing. It's the same thing for marketing properties. The more eyeballs you have on there, the more interest, the more inbound inquiries, the more offers, the more that you can then, you know, work prices against each other, the better terms you can get and carry it to the finish line. That was a really fun marketing campaign. Yeah, no, the team crushed it. I mean, I remember we sat down together and we were like, hey, look, you know, there's still uncertainty, you know, um, this is a price per door that hasn't been done in this area of Denver. And, you know, how are we going to get the maximum exposure and the most number of people through there, the most number of qualified offers to get the best deal? And so, you know, I thought Brandon uh, and your your entire team over there did an incredible job of the marketing. Brandon and Teal did a great job executing and negotiating it. And uh, yeah, I mean, just the whole thing from start to finish was was really well executed. And that's really what it takes, I think, you know, especially going into economic uncertainty, uh, or a recession, whatever you want to call it, like you have to have a team of people that are, you know, that you're working together, you have a game plan, you have, uh, you can execute it. And that's really where the advantage comes. And I think that's where our advantage has been is, you know, in a really competitive market, Denver or Des Moines, like there's a, there's always people looking, right. But when you have like systems and process, you have a track record, you have the platform that has done this kind of thing multiple times, I think that is is where we're able to really have an edge and and to deliver the kind of returns that we expect to deliver, right? And, um, you know, so we're really excited. We're super humbled and, uh, you know, excited and, you know, really thankful for the people that believed in us, right? Because writing that check and, and sending that wire uh, and committing to that in July, August, September, October of 2020 was not a really comfortable thing for a lot of people, you know? No. And, um, you know, a lot of stock prices had gotten crushed, you know, maybe then at that point they were on the way up, but it still was not like, hey, that we're going to go into this bull run like we did and no one could have predicted, you know, what was going to happen. And so, um, yeah, no, it was a great, I mean, for me, it was a great learning lesson. You know, we had, like you said, a bunch of people back out, a bunch of people say no, you know, we're scared. You know, I had one investor that was maybe at the time one of our biggest investors basically be like, if you buy this deal, I'm not investing with you ever again. Like, I think you shouldn't be investing. I think the world is... In oh, a really, is that oh, like... Oh, yeah. And he was like worth tons of money and had written really big checks. I think his average check size was probably like a million dollars in deals. And he was like, I want to back you on every deal, a million dollars. And then when COVID happened, he was like, I think you should stop. I don't think you should be doing anything. I think you should wait. I think it's getting really... And I was like, sir, I can't do that. You know what I mean? Like, I'm... You know, we built a company to like 
buy deals, not to sit on the side. Like when we see a deal, we need to execute. And he was like, you know, if you do this deal, I just don't think I can invest with Veracoin anymore. And he hasn't, you know, since. And so, you know, that, there were really tough conversations yeah. that happened. And, uh, you know, it was a really, uh, you know, interesting time for me personally, because you know, I just started Verico and we're, you know, we were, you know, not profitable and we hadn't really had a track record and to have people, you know, that were big investors at the time saying, Hey, we don't think you should be buying, you know, was difficult. But, um, you know, I just think at my core, you know, when I started buying in 2008, right at my core is I, I just know how to buy deals when there's, when there's motivated sellers and when I feel like it's a discount and when the season is, is right. And whenever there's fear, I think that is when, you know, a light bulb goes on and says, hey, this is where we should be really, you know, I think more proactive and more intentional and, you know, just being disciplined, but being in the market, you know, and letting brokers know, hey, we're definitely buying, but it needs to be right. And I think what people don't realize is when the market is hot and everyone's like, buy multifamily, it's a much harder for us to do deals, to get deals that make sense, right? Way, way harder to dictate terms and say, we need it at this price and we blah, blah, blah. But when there's fewer buyers and everyone is scared, we can dictate terms and say, we need it at this number and we, we want to close on this day and we need the rent roll, you know, we need to take over management or whatever the terms are, you know, and we've even seen that in the last 30, 60 days is we're getting to dictate terms more than we have in the last two years. So I got two questions for you here. So first is, you know, great sermon, all that stuff. Now going forward, we're going to summer 2022 right now. And we all know the problems going on. Mm-hmm. What kind of the strategy now, the aggressiveness, sounds like you guys are full steam ahead. And has your strategy changed or is still just your classic value add and you're now able to dictate terms better? So I do think the strategy is pivoting, you know, from buying like dilapidated buildings that have maybe half of a rent roll or, you know, is, you know, half vacant. You know, we are going to be looking to buy more blue chip type properties. So I think location, I think going into a recession and a recession to me really just means people could be losing their jobs, right? Companies could be laying off. I mean, you've seen Tesla, JP Morgan, all these big names are saying hurricane, tsunami, um, you know, we're going to be laying off 10, 15% of the workforce. Like that's going to, that's going to happen most likely. Yeah. People start saying that it's going to become a reality. So, you know, when you think about like, and we're in the workforce housing and people getting laid off. So we need to be really, really focused on location. Like, I think location matters now more. And then your basis, your cost basis matters a lot, right? What your basis is because debt has gone up. And so being able to service that debt, have and be able to make a distribution and and be cash flow positive. So location really matters. And I think your basis, so being really price sensitive. So in terms of location, just like, just like, just higher. Yeah, so I'll give you some examples. So in Denver, so like Cherry Creek. So I'd be buying Cherry Creek. I, I think if you own a building in Cherry Creek or a home that you're renting, like, I think that a lot of bad things can happen in the market and you're still going to be able to rent it and really close to your pro forma, mm-hmm. like Cherry Creek, Wash Park, right? Sloan's Lake. I think there's parts of like Inglewood in the suburbs. Like, I really love the suburbs. You know, I think the suburbs are less price sensitive and are, you know, dual income and things like that. So, and I also think you can buy it for much cheaper on a, on a risk adjusted cost basis. And so I think certain parts of like Inglewood, Arvada, Wheat Ridge, Lakewood, Littleton, like, you know, a deal we just did in Lakewood, you know, Lakewood put a moratorium on building. So Mm -hmm. if you're buying apartments or houses in Lakewood, there's a good chance that like supply and demand is in your favor, right? There's not going to be that much supply. Demand is only increasing because one of the things you have to think about is if it's harder to buy a home and there's less buyers for homes, there's going to be more renters, more qualified renters. And so buying in specific locations means you're going to have more demand, even though there is, there could be some people getting laid off. There's still, you know, 
pro rata, like around the, the, you know, in the metro, there's going to be more people looking to rent. And that's one of the reasons too, multifamily and commercial assets have stayed so hot and attractive in the last few months because rents are rising. Right. And as interest rates go up, that's bumping out, I mean, probably 20 to yeah. 30% of like the buyer pool to buy their first time house. Yeah. So that just forces more people back into being renters, totally. which is unfortunate for them, but good for apartment owners. On the inflation point, one of the things that people, one of the other things that people don't realize is that, you know, when, if you own an industrial building or office building or retail or restaurant or anything else like hospitality, rents don't reset for two, three, four or five years. Like when you sign a lease with a commercial tenant or an industrial tenant or an office tenant, you're, you're most of the time locked into that rate three, four, five years, and maybe like one or 2% bumps. Yeah, that's predetermined bumps every every three or four or five years. And so the, the great thing about the apartment business is that you can reset rents every six to 12 months. So as inflation continues to go up and there continues to be less and less people buying homes and more renters, you can capture some of that uh, with the new rent, with the with the new lease. And so that's, that's that's been one of the things that I think has really helped multifamily, but not a lot of people talk about that that aspect of how inflation actually can help if you're in in the multifamily or even, or even single family game. So what about, wait, I gotta know. ask a question, because this is, I've had this uh, just debate a lot of times with people like, I mean, rents have gone up like crazy, just like prices have, yeah. you know, the last couple of years. Is there going to be a ceiling of how much people can raise rents? Because I mean, eventually, especially with inflation, like renters will get squeezed at some yeah. point. Like oh, they are sure. like, yeah. well, I'm curious, like when that ceiling happens or if that happens. And I think that's where going back to location, locations and your cost bases really, really matter. Like, I think you have to be very disciplined in, I'm going to buy in this, these micro neighborhoods. And this is where my price per door needs to be, depending on how much construction I have to do. Because Yes, absolutely. Like you can't raise rents to infinity. And, you know, we really see a cap on two bedrooms somewhere around 1500, depending on the location, right? In the neighborhood. And so that's why, you know, we're buying buildings where the average rent is a thousand or 1100, because we know we can get it to 1500 really, really conservatively. Now, can I get it to 17? I don't know. Can I do what I just did uh, in the Highlands or in other neighborhoods where we've, you know, have rents at 16, 17, 1800, and we have a waiting list? I don't know that that's the, we're not underwriting that, you know, for sure. Like, I'm not going to bet on that. Maybe that'll happen, but I don't, I'm not forecasting that. But I think 1500 for a two bedroom that's like renovated and clean, I think is down the middle of the fairway, very conservative. And I think is actually low, you know, in terms of what we're seeing in the market. So I just think being very focused on location, you know, where like, even if the sky falls and things get really bad, like this is a location people are going to want to live and going to need to live and a basis that's really, really conservative, right? I think speculating on appreciation is dangerous, but forced appreciation through construction and good property mm-hmm. management, I think is is totally fair and uh, and I think is appropriate, right? I mean, at some point, you know, you need to have like a healthy standard of a conservative versus aggressive. And, and so I think that we would call that like, you know, very fair and, and, uh, and risk adjusted underwriting. So, um, that's kind of what we're looking at is, you know, we're very, we're very specific on locations, very specific on the basis that we're going to buy into and just less heavy construction. Now I want to do more like lipstick, more painting floors, cleaning versus like heavy value add, like we just did at Midtown, because going into recession, like I want to keep the basis as low as possible. Spending more and more on construction, increasing the basis is not really what I want to do. I'd rather lower my rent comps and perform on rents and lower what I'm going to spend on construction. And then look, if the market continues to take off and and uh, debt comes back down and cap rates compress, then look, my basis is low and we win. But if cap rates expand and you know 
and debt continues to grow and in terms of interest rate and there's fewer and fewer buyers, I don't want to be stuck in a property that I can't sell for a profit. And so just keeping your basis low, I think is key. Whether you're buying a single family home as a rental or a multifamily property, I think that's that's that would be my advice. And that's the way we're we're looking at deals and and uh, that's kind of our fundamentals currently at Verco. All right, second question here for you, because I've gotten this question a few times now as we've done some podcasts and I've seen people watching social media. Uh, I've had people ask me about your property management company, property management company, Live Lavender, um, and they ask, oh, does does Terrence's Live Lavender manage other people's properties? Mm -hmm. What's your answer to that? No, not right now. We we tried to do third party construction and we've done it for three or four key investors. And, you know, it's gone well for a few. And on other ones, you know, it's hard because, you know, our main priority at Verico is to manage our own properties, yeah. construction and property. And that's the number one thing, like our fiduciary responsibilities to our investors. And, and honestly, like me being one of the bigger investors, it's like, we need to execute on the Verico projects. And so it's been kind of hard because it, it's felt like we were serving like two masters a little bit. And uh, so, so we're no longer going to be doing third property, third party construction. We will do third party property management only if we own the building and we're selling it. So like on a couple of buildings that we're selling, we would retain it because we know the building, we know the ins for, and outs. Like, like Midtown, for example. Like Midtown, like West that, 32nd. Any deals that we're selling that we've renovated and we know intimately well, we would do. And then, you know, I think down the road, we would look to grow that into like 100 plus unit buildings for like institutional buyers. And I think that that could be strategic for us, but not right now. I mean, I think right now we're really focused on the deals that we own and delivering the best return and really focusing on that. And then if we're selling a building and it's already fully leased and turnkey, like us retaining management only makes sense from the aspect that we know the residents we already signed yeah. the leases. We know the maintenance. We know the building. We have You've the done all the hard stuff. We, do, we yeah, we have the warranties for all the labor and the, and the, the warranties for yeah. the materials. And so the buyer is actually getting, I think, you know. Uh, well, that's a big cherry on it's, top it's of big, if yeah. I can maintain the property management because that's one they're kind of getting a pass keys. there. Yeah, yeah, instead of having to transition it to someone else and teach them how the building yeah. works and who the residents. Because what you see is a lot of attrition when you pass off a building, like the residents want to deal with the leasing agent they signed the lease with and things like that. And so I do think that that's a big carrot for us yeah. uh, when we're selling a building, like, hey, we'll stay on at a market rate. We already know the building. We know the people. And so we are in discussions to do that on some buildings we're selling right now in Denver and Des Moines. But uh, just like Joe Schmo off the street and their fourplex, we're not doing that. And, uh, and honestly, I don't think we really have an advantage in that game. I think our advantage comes when there's scale. When there's 40, 50, 100 plus units, I think we know how to do that better than most just because of some of the fundamentals we discussed. Like we really understand leasing. We understand uh, the rent comps. We really understand re renewals. Like renewals is one of the things that we really focus on is yeah. how do you get people, once you've done all the heavy lifting of construction and leasing, how do you get them to stay? And uh, maintenance, the systems and process around maintenance, so things like that. So yeah, Live Lavender, I'm really proud of the work that we've done over there. We've got an amazing team. And uh, you know, I, I do think we'll be able to add value to buildings uh, that we're selling and those new owners and retaining management. Dude, that makes a lot of sense. So Terrence, thanks a lot, man. I always appreciate sitting down with you for 30 minutes, talking deals, fun talking the market. We'll have to get back in the groove doing this more often. Um, last question for you, how can people get a hold of you? They want to know about what you're up to, deals, potential investment opportunities. What's the best place best place for them? Yeah, we can put our website on the in the show notes and then, you know, Instagram, LinkedIn, uh, they can reach out to me and you know my cell phone's online, people can shoot me a text, you know, but um we are going to be launching a coaching program here for people that want to grow their real estate business. It'll probably launch in August and mm -hmm. it's going to be, you know, we're going to have one aspect that's going to be rising stars, so like people just that want to learn and grow and uh, and then another aspect is going to be called like the franchise player. So people that really want to like real estate full time that are syndicating or flipping or doing anything 
at scale. And then, you know, with my background and experience, I'm able to help them, you know, scale their business, grow their business, really get into the nuances of how do you underwrite? How do you raise capital? What are some lenders that I have that'll lend to them? Maybe some investors I can help introduce. And so, you know, we're gonna have two programs. I'm really excited about it. I think I've been doing it with three groups right now that I've been helping them and I've stepped in to help them get the debt and help them manage, manage their buildings. And I've really enjoyed it. And I think it's kind of the next progression of the podcast of like, you know, we, we know all these people around the country and, you know, we've, I've learned just firsthand from managing my own stuff and buying and lending and raising capital and, and even managing a team now, right. Of 50 plus employees. It's like, there's, there's a steep learning curve to all of that. And so being able to pass that on to, you know, strategic people that we believe that, you know, we could be like-minded and strategic partners long-term. So, yeah, I think we're going to be having some really exciting things coming out uh, later this summer and then the fall. And then we have, you know, season three of multifamily mentors and we're working out with bigger pockets and, uh, you know, we have some awesome uh, guests lined up for that. Yeah. I've seen uh, the wedding well. list. Yeah. It's, 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 a, yeah. it's another stack. There's, there's a quite a, yeah. So we have a lot of really exciting things coming up yeah. and uh, yeah. So people can reach out. I think just through social media is probably the easiest thing. Cool. Uh, well, we'll definitely talk all about that stuff as it comes out. So stay tuned to the podcast, follow Terrence on Instagram. I'd recommend going to Verico, get on their email newsletter as well. I know you guys are pumping that up now and revamping. It's great. So definitely stay tuned. Listeners, thank you. Terrence, thank you. We'll see you guys next week. This is great. Thanks, Chris. We'll be right back.